the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. Again, follow the show, danprofshow.com, online. You can find podcasts there as you, as, uh, as you can at Spotify and iTunes. Uh, on social media, Facebook, Twitter, at Dan Prof Show, at Prof Dan on Instagram. And uh, we begin this installment by talking about both uh, George Floyd and uh, his killing by a Minneapolis police officer. Uh, the response to it, the rioting that's going on in Minneapolis and uh, some other cities as well, rioting against police, as well as protesting. The the press corps doesn't do a very good job of distinguishing between protesters petitioning their government who are legitimate and rioters uh, robbing and destroying businesses who are illegitimate. I guess they're still in the Stephanie Rawlings Blake mindset of providing a safe space for the rioters, as the former mayor of Baltimore famously said when the rioting occurred after the Freddie Gray police involved killing in Baltimore. And that philosophy uh, had uh, Stephanie Rawlings Blake ushered out of office uh, and uh, Baltimore experienced uh, a devastating surge in violent crime, didn't it? But it's not just that. It's not just um, the responses both at the grassroots level, those protesting peacefully, those looting. It's also the responses from the leftist media and punditry class, really important. And the connection, the connection that that latter group is making to uh, Cooper v. Cooper in Central Park. Get to that connection in just a second. But. Uh, Going back to Minneapolis and the protesting and the people that are uh, doing so legitimately, uh, making strange bedfellows. And uh, this is an encouraging note. So we try and find uh, or uh, identify and amplify those that we find. Uh, This is two self-identified rednecks standing outside a tobacco store with uh, military sport rifles who uh, believe in uh, the protesters position on George Floyd, that he was murdered and that there needs to be justice for him, a position I concur with as well, um, but are not going to let people committing acts of violence and theft uh, express themselves in that way, at least not wherever they're stationed. So tell me who you are. Uh, Well, I mean, free Americans, yeah. And what are you doing today? uh, We were out here yesterday, too. Uh, down on the original protest site. So basically, you've seen the records that cops keep. And cops are a lot less likely to try and tread on people's rights when there's other armed Americans with them. So we figured it's about damn time that some, or at least I figure that it's about damn time some heavily armed rednecks 
stood with fellow citizens. And why are you protecting this door? Well, I mean, this wasn't exactly a yeah. specified we action. We, we we've been kind of so well, we just kind of ended up here. We, we've been moving around and just trying to see what see what's what without getting necessarily completely slapped by massive groups of people. And uh, while we were walking, somebody mentioned that there were some guys at the back of us. We wanted to know if they were over to go buy something, and uh, they said that they're they're closed and they're defending their businesses. Oh yeah, Target's on fire. Yeah. By the way. Yeah. But and anyway, so we heard that we're like, well, we, we better we better kid up and go see if these guys need help. And it turns out these guys are out here with machetes and shattered windows trying to keep looters out of the business because cops can't get in here. And so, you know, I figure before they were cops, they were just Americans. So here we are. Already out during the LA riots. Or during the LA riots. Collateral damage, I guess. Everyone protecting their own stuff. That's where you got the term rooftop Korean. So bottom line, justice for Floyd. And uh, I hope they stop looting at some point. If there are more of us, we could go stop them from looting. But it's just us four. Yeah, we definitely don't agree with the looting. Yeah, no, looting, yeah, imagine making such a distinction. We agree with the protesters and the cause for their protestations. We disagree with the looters. This is uh, a baffling to CNN, Chiron, I saw today. Uh, protesters demand justice for George Floyd. And um, it's a picture of people looting a store. Those people are demanding justice. No, I don't think so. Um, In addition to that, you have had a law enforcement uh, weigh in on this in a way that you haven't had in in other cases that involve some controversy with respect to police action. Houston Police Chief Art Acevedo, who is the uh, head of the Major City Chiefs Association in America, termed it unfathomable what uh, the officer in question, who's been identified as um, uh, Derek Chauvin, Unfathomable for an officer to put his uh, knee on a handcuffed suspect's neck, as the video showed. He said he couldn't recall such uniform condemnation of an officer's action by other police ever occurring in the past. And uh, it seems pretty straightforward, as we discussed yesterday, because from my Chicago police friends, they say, well, we're trained when you have a suspect cuffed and effectively under your control, effectively in custody, Uh, and they're on the ground, you turn them on their side for the very purpose of preventing them from asphyxiation rather than continuing to keep them on their stomach, much less pressed down in the back of their neck with your knee to the point of unconsciousness and then continue doing so for minutes after that until emergency services arrive. Reckless disregard for human life. Seems pretty straightforward. But um, going back to now the reactions what uh, the left is trying to make of this incident as it draws in the University of Chicago MBA dog walker versus the Harvard-educated bird watcher in Central Park. This piece by uh, Adrian Green in The New Yorker uh, is a a prime example of what I'm referencing. She terms uh, Amy Cooper, remember, a woman of the left a leftist in good standing, an Obama donor. This is left versus left, left cannibalizing left. Why did Amy Cooper have to get cannibalized? We'll get to that. He, uh, uh, excuse me, she writes of Amy and Christian and their encounter in Central Park over the space. Uh, just as she's uh, watching the clip of what happened there, it rolls across the screen what happened in Minneapolis. And she describes what happened to George Floyd, which we all know. She said it recalls eerily the arrest of Eric Garner in 2014. 
this is what Amy Cooper wanted Christian Cooper to be afraid of. This is what Amy Cooper wanted Christian Cooper to be afraid of. Amy Cooper called 911 because she wanted Christian Cooper to know police are on their way. And as a black man, you will you could very well be murdered by the police, killed by the police, murdered by the police, depending on your perspective. But some of these matters have been adjudicated, like the Eric Garner case. No murder charges. Um, murdered by police like uh, Walter Scott in South Carolina or I would argue George Floyd in Minneapolis. And um, so what's what's really afoot here? What binds these reactions that rather than left versus left, it's white versus black at Central Park? And, of course, the response that we've unfortunately become somewhat accustomed to to uh, any police involved death, which is rioting, regardless of the facts, the, the specific facts. The specific facts in Michael Brown, very different than in George Floyd and Freddie Gray, very different than in George Floyd. But the reactions were somewhat similar, as there have been in other cases. I want to go back to an interview I did last week with David Azerod on this show, a scholar from the Hillsdale College, who wrote an excellent piece in the Claremont Review of Books on social justice warriors, identitarian politics and and what the real end game here is. And uh, the end game, of course, is hate. And the proposition is that, as Susan Sontag famously said, cancer on humanity is whiteness. That's the problem. And that's the opportunity to rail, to advance that identitarian movement, to advance the power and ambitions of that movement. When you have white officer and black black victim, when you have white dog walker and black bird watcher and the police are called. What really runs counter to human nature is I'm going to stoke hatred in your soul. I'm going to get you to obsess compulsively and see racism, sexism, homophobia everywhere and anywhere from, as I said, Peloton classes. I mean, you, you, everyone knows this at this point. And then the claim is, and if we do this long enough, then one day we're all going to get along. Right. But h- how do you uproot hate, hate from the soul? Right. Hate, Especially, be, hate, hate begets love is what they're saying. Yeah. And without Christianity, I mean, this is the crazy part. So, you know, we call MLK Dr. King. He's Reverend King. He was a Christian minister more than he was. I mean, that was a more important part of his identity than was his Ph.D. They've abandoned the Christian element of the civil rights movement from the 60s, which did preach forgiveness and reconciliation. They've gotten rid of that. They draw their roots from the black power, black nationalist movements. And then you look into the human soul. I mean, how is that supposed to happen? Teach people to hate, and then one day that'll just disappear and they're all going to get along? And That's it, not the way it works. Not the way it works, indeed. This is Dan Fox. If I go crazy, then will you still call me Superman? If I'm alive, then will you be there holding my hand? I'll keep you by my side with my super. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And again, the conversation with respect to COVID-19 turns to the things that we're learning and the things we're still trying to figure. And it's not just in America. Uh, Interesting story in an Israeli publication. Why no one can explain the drop in coronavirus cases in Israel. And uh, the author goes through the running discussion among Israeli scientists right now 
uh, grouped in camps. I mean, you know, all credentialed individuals, uh, physician and mathematicians on one side versus epidemiologists on the other side, arguing about why the uh, health ministry, the Israeli health ministry's forecast of 8,600 to 21,600 Israelis would die from coronavirus uh, was so far off. Right now, Israeli has fewer than 300 confirmed COVID-19 deaths uh, based on mathematical assumptions on the rate of contagion that ended up being untrue or incorrect, at least to this date uh, in time. Uh, All the things that we don't know about the virus, and of course, we expect to learn more as you have all these various teams of researchers in a healthy competition to develop a virus uh, and uh, the, the world over with some promise coming from uh, the Moderna potential vaccine. I said I said maybe it's a virus vaccine, obviously develop a vaccine. Uh, Moderna showing promise and then the Oxford AstraZeneca group also showing some promise reportedly. For more on uh, what we're learning about the virus itself that has instructive value in how to combat it, we're pleased to be joined by Benjamin uh, Tuniver, who is a microbiology professor at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount, si- uh, Mount Sinai. Professor, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, I'm happy to join you, Dan. Thank you. Um, I wanted to get into the piece that uh, you uh, uh, were uh, uh, quoted in with respect to uh, uh, at satnews.com with respect to the study you're doing on COVID-19. But but just in terms of the debate raging in, in America, but in Israel the world over regarding what the models predicted and, and what we have seen come to pass, and more uh, people suggesting, well, um, it's not necessarily what we did is why the models were wrong. It's just uh, that the models were wrong. Yeah, that's a complicated question to jump into right off the bat. I, um, Sorry. <laughs> I, no, that's fine. No, that's totally fine. I actually did not know this uh, phenomenon in Israel that you're speaking of. I would argue if that is indeed all factually correct, that well, sorry, there's a number of variables that could attribute to such a phenomenon. So you could certainly envision that maybe the Israeli population has a genetic marker that renders them a little bit more resistant to severe disease or to spread that one way that you could envision such a phenomenon happening. You could envision that the relative temperature and humidity in Israel is just at the perfect balance where the R0 or the, the measurement of the capacity of the virus to move from person to person drops to a rate where all the mathematicals go wrong. Or it just could be that there I mean, could be something in their diet that does a great job at rendering uh, the virus having a difficult time to replicate. So there are a number of phenomenons that I mean, they're clearly not known, but that might explain such a phenomenon if, if that's in fact true. Yeah, it's interesting, and, yeah. I, and, and I'm not taking position. I'm just trying to understand uh, uh, the variables and, and perhaps the weighting. So, for example, another curious case is the country of India, which is a very densely populated country, particularly in big cities. It's not a particularly clean country. Uh, it is a particularly hot country, climate-wise, and it has seen very few cases. It's sort of mystifying, but maybe it has to do with some of the variables you just suggested about Israel. Yeah, although from what I understand, actually, the cases are now uh, rising dramatically in India. And so some of it definitely has to do with simple reporting and governmental infrastructure to report back proper numbers uh, and identify actual cases. Um, but, yeah, I mean, like, like, like I, I said, you, there are variables that maybe are playing a role in this. Uh, I'm certain that when phenomenon like this do happen, that 
scientists in general uh, are very quick to start setting that in intense detail because information like that would be incredibly useful with regards to how to treat uh, this disease moving forward. And uh, now let's go to some of your work. Um, you uh, reference in the piece that I reference uh, that uh, in your uh, work studying COVID-19, you've seen something you've never seen in your 20 years of studying viruses. And, and what's that? Yeah, that's uh, it, it is a, definitely a true statement. So there's, there's a couple of things about that, uh, about the virus in general. So like what I, what I do as a, as a job is to study how different organisms deal with viruses. So viruses, of course, you know, inflict all aspects of life and we all deal with them in slightly different ways. But as, as mammals, we, we have pretty uniform in the way we fight virus. And basically, when you get infected by a virus, you have two basic programs that the infected cells need to launch. One is a call to arms. That is, tell all your neighbors there's a virus coming. You need to fortify and uh, get ready for this battle. And the other one is a call for reinforcements, where you tell all of the uh, more sophisticated immune cells to come to the site of infection, to clean up the dead and dying cells, and to uh, develop a much more um, antibody and specific response to that virus. And so with SARS-CoV-2, what we see is that the uh, call to reinforcements uh, is launched uninhibited, um, whereas the call to arms is blocked by the virus. And so the um, duality of that, of having one blocked and the other one uh, going in full force, is really a recipe for disaster because there's nothing to control the virus at the site of infection, so the virus can just kind of fester in place and slowly spread while you call in for massive reinforcements without stopping. And it's a very imbalanced response, which ultimately leads to all these infiltrates in your lungs, making it difficult to breathe. And this is also why the disease takes two weeks to occur. The thing that uh, that quote directly reflects on, though, is that one of the things we do to study this is we take essentially a snapshot of uh, all the software running in the cell. So if you think about our DNA is our hard drive where we store all the information, um, we run programs that make us walk and talk and feel, uh, and that's and, you know, we call it RNA. So you can think about it as software, a running program. And so in general, your cells are made up of about 25,000 programs that are running at different times, at different levels at any given time. And so what we can do is we can, we can monitor what software is running at any given time. And so in general, what we do is we, we take a snapshot of cells and say, okay, you know, these 20,000 software programs are running right now. And then we infect those same cells with virus. And we say, okay, what happens now? And what you'll see is that the virus accounts for about anywhere from 2 to 5% of software programs, meaning it's running its own program amongst the other programs. And, of course, the other programs are that impacted by the virus, right, very much like a, a virus that gets into your computer. The thing that's truly unbelievable about SARS is that while most viruses never exceed more than a few percentile of the total software running, SARS can, can create up to 80% of all the software running, which is something – I, I mean, I've been doing this for 20 years, and I've never seen a virus do this before, where basically the, the virus is destroying all the programs of the host cell, and it's only running its own programs to make itself. And it's doing that so successfully that it, it essentially is absorbing all of the RAM that is the cell's capacity to run programs. And it's I, truly I, uh, an impressive feat. I, I want to I pick it up right there. So the implications of what you're describing, both in terms of uh, the case fatality rates as well as the prospect of a vaccine, 
We'll uh, continue our discussion with Professor Benjamin, uh, Benjamin Tunover, microbiology professor at the Icon School of Medicine in Mount Sinai, right after this. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're talking to microbiology professor Benjamin Tunover. He is at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, and we were just talking about uh, what he has discovered in his research of COVID-19 that uh, is uh, um, a first for uh, his two decades worth of research into viruses. He's a virologist, a microbiology professor, as I mentioned. As you're describing how much the virus takes control of the system, of the host cell you were describing before the break, so then what does that mean for fatality? For example, why is it that we have uh, 43% of deaths in the United States from only 0.6% of the population, the 0.6% of the population in nursing homes and long-term care facilities. Why is it so so much weighted towards 65 and over with comorbidities and not distributed as much like the flu is? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. The short answer is we're not entirely sure, but the most likely reason for that comes down to what I was talking about before the break, which is that this virus has the capacity to stop the call to arms, that, that signal that the very first cells that get infected, they spread to all the cells around them saying, get ready for a fight and fortify. And it tells those cells to build up stronger walls, to you know, arm themselves with as many weapons that will be useful against this virus as possible. And that is responsible for maintaining the local virus population and minimizing the amount of virus that's made to buy yourself some time so that the more sophisticated response, remember the call to reinforcement, you need time for all those cells to come in and learn more about this virus. So those incoming cells, they sample the virus and they look for pieces that are vulnerable to attack. And that's how the immune system works. So and it's so, this two-part system. Right. And so, so, so younger, healthier people, just to continue the, the metaphor, um, they, uh, they can fend it off with just the first wave of, uh, of response. But uh, uh, so they don't need the second wave as much. But uh, those that are older and more co- immunocompromised need both waves. Uh, yeah, that's that's one way to put it. It's a, it's a, that's fair. I, I, I would I would say instead that uh, in older people or people with comorbidities, that first wave like in both cases, in young and old, the virus is, is able to block that first wave. There's a little bit that leaks out. And as you uh, suggested in the young, because when you're younger, this whole response is stronger the little bit of that program that does manage to run is sufficient to get the job done. Whereas people with comorbidities, whether it be old age or some other underlying disease, that same system is essentially exhausted. And so the little bit that can run is now not sufficient. And that's really the difference between having comorbidity or being, you know, advanced age versus, uh, you know, young and healthy. So does uh, the research you're describing, does that tell us anything about the prospects of a vaccine? Because, of course, we've seen... uh... Uh, projections about uh, the possibility of a vaccine, uh, you know, range uh, from uh, uh, highly likely to somewhat likely. We've seen uh, timelines from the fall to the winter to 18 months to maybe never. Um, What is uh, your research? uh, How does your research inform that question? 
So I, I'm very optimistic about the vaccine. All the data I've seen, and I've been privy to a lot of data, uh, suggests that there is nothing complicated about this vaccine at all. In fact, many of the vaccines that we made against SARS-CoV-1 back in 2003 uh, are themselves partially protective just because the two viruses are so related to each other. Uh, and so, as you, again, you mentioned before the break, like the uh, University of Oxford's uh, adenovirus-based vaccine or Moderna's RNA technology or like any more, and one of the like dozen other platforms that are out there, they're all likely to work. The bigger question is, uh, has to do with just safety and manufacturing. And my guess is they'll all be safe, uh, but this is something we have to make sure of. Like when you start putting, you know, foreign material into people, especially when there's already this um, subculture of people who are uh, hesitant and disbelieving of, of vaccine technology, uh, we got to obviously make sure it's safe because the last thing we want to do is give those people any kind of fodder for, for support because vaccines are entirely safe and do not do any of the things that those same, uh, those same disbelievers uh, uh, tout. But uh, so we need to make sure they're safe. Um, and that's basically what's going on right now. So phase one clinical trials of the Oxford vaccine in England right now are just really monitoring safety. So they give it to a thousand people and they monitor them very closely just to make sure that one, they are protected from the disease. And two, we don't see any uh, uh, impact of the vaccine that we weren't expecting because that does happen sometimes. And do you and think, then once we, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. So the, 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 the second component, which has to do more with when it's going to be available have to do with manufacturing and so depending on which platform ultimately is the one that you know gets full fda approval first then you need to be able to manufacture it for eight billion people which is not a small feat right so it's not just about making it but making it safe and making sure that from batch to batch there's no inconsistencies so i have no doubt that we're going to have a safe effective vaccine for SARS-CoV-2. i'm sure the vaccine will be fda approved by the end of the year but when it's going to be available for the masses is a different question okay fair enough he is a microbiology professor, Benjamin Tunover. He's a professor at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Professor, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your insights. Oh, my pleasure. Anytime. Take care. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. It took 27 years of living to experience what it's like to have a government that was sworn to uphold the Constitution, neglect the very words the founders used to build the greatest nation on earth. Those are the words of Alyssa Algren in a commentary that she wrote at alphanewsmn.com, a Minnesota-focused outlet. And uh, always good to get a fresh perspective, particularly from a young person, Alyssa Algren joins us now. Alyssa, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Well, um, be- before we get into um, the uh, commentary that you penned, uh, you're a Minnesota resident, and I just wanted to get uh, your feel for what's happening in Minneapolis uh, per the uh, rioting and protesting, and those are two different things, the rioting and protesting going on after the, um, uh, the death of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police. Yeah, well, like you said, it's it's rioting, not protesting. What started off as, you know, protesting in the streets with signs and uh, nothing really too too violent going on, really escalated as the night was going on. I was doing some live reporting. I wasn't on the scene, but some of my colleagues at Alpha News 
I know two of them did actually go down to the areas that saw the fires, the looting, the rioting. There were even shots fired around 3.50 a.m. that our reporters were around, but thankfully walked away safely from. I, this, We all know that this, this event and what happened was maybe some overzealous cops with some poor training. What happened was horrific and tragic. No one is on the side of what could have been racism or no one's on the side of racism. No one's on the side of abusive power. But to go into Target and steal a 75-inch TV is not bringing justice to anyone. It has nothing to do with the, the issue at hand. It's not going to, you know, if you're trying to fight police brutality, using more brutality is not going to solve any issues. It's only escalating the situation. And uh, going back to your commentary about uh, escalating the situation, escalating the situation of fear, of, uh, of uh, promotion of lockdowns, has been uh, the, uh, the D.C. press corps and, uh, and politicians like your governor, Governor Walls, uh, and, and you uh, recoil at that. Um, where do you get your uh, sense of fearlessness that so many of your uh, age cohort does not possess, it, it would seem? I have to thank my parents on that one. They, I am born from a immigrant mother, owns her own small business. My dad grew up conservative. I grew up in a very conservative religious household. I went to college, and instead of converting to liberalism like my peers seemed to do mostly, I kind of looked around me, and I was, it just kind of solidified my beliefs. So it's, it's definitely attributed to how I was raised. I wasn't raised with it shoved down my throat. I was taught to question things and not just take a media headline at face value. I need to do my own research. And so I've just I've stuck with that, and I've you know grown an interest in, in it, and ever since Ever since then, as we see the country become more divisive than ever, I've become more vocal about it. And it's really just kind of fueled my passion for everything going on. And I've learned through this pandemic that more than ever that, you know, just because you live in a free country doesn't mean you're guaranteed freedom. And and what's your diagnosis of what you see happening around you, and including in how uh, millennials like yourself are reacting to uh, the coverage, to the p- uh, pronouncements of politicians? So I would say that what's happening, and I always like to say, if you give the government an inch, they'll take a mile. And that's kind of what you're, you're seeing. And I, there's kind of a split reaction among my generation. I feel like a lot, of, a lot of people I talk to are fed up, and they do think this is ridiculous, Democrat and Republican alike. I have actually, you know, people I staunchly disagree with on policy, we have come together and to say, okay, our constitutional rights, you know, whether you believe in safeguarding the Second Amendment or not on other issues, that's irrelevant. Our fundamental rights are being stepped on. Why in the world is someone forcing me to stay inside, to be on top of each other, be on top of your family members, recirculating air? You know, you're you're in close quarters, yet I can't go outside into public places where I can stay 50 feet away from the person next to me and getting that vitamin D boost my immune system. Why can't I go on a boat? Why can't I, you know, it just, it's not making sense. And people are waking up to that. And then you, of course, you have the other side that's buying into the fear mongering of the media where you look, you turn on CNN and it basically sounds like if you step out of your house, you're going to die. Mm-hmm. 
So, but I, I honestly, and maybe this is me just being optimistic, but I think people are waking up on both sides. Do you think that um, there's a one particular policy that uh, really has uh, rallied people against, uh, say, Governor Walls in Minnesota or, or another example of this? Uh, again, your age cohort, just because it's so interesting, uh, where they say, you know, I'm I'm for a lot of this and I'm concerned the way that other people are expressing their concern. But, you know, this one policy or this one aspect of a lockdown is just a bridge too far. Sure. I think that, well, if you even look at Whitmer in her and over in Michigan and her nonsensical policy, you can't, you know, visit family members up in your cabin or you like you said, you can't go in a boat with a motor, but you can go on a rowboat. It's just these these things that don't make sense. And of course, now you're seeing our mayor of Minneapolis is mandating masks and this this whole mask issue has become a very partisan one now. And what what should be something that you that basically the people determine I should be able I want to wear masks because I'm concerned about my community's health. I'm concerned about my neighbor's health. I shouldn't have to be forced to wear a mask because once you start mandating masks, that means the police can arrest you. That means the police have to uphold that mandate. That's not a free country. That's not me taking charge of my health and caring for my neighbors. That's uh, the bureaucracy saying I am too incompetent to wear a mask and think that's the rational thing to do. So it's not even about masks anymore. And this is the one I point this out because I feel like this is the one policy that really, you know, just split the community and split the really, you know, exacerbated the partisan divide. You, and so when you get into that territory of mandating, I think that's where you get issues. When we come back with Alpha News columnist Alyssa Algren, I want to uh, reference the point you made in your piece, Alyssa, about uh, America's rebellious spirit. More with Alyssa Algren right after this. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Proft Show. We're back with Alyssa Algren, and Alyssa, I want to get back to your commentary, what the shutdown has taught us, and a, a point you made in the conclusion of your piece. The American spirit was derived from rebellion and the desire to be free. Good luck keeping that locked down. I, uh, I appreciate the optimism. I, I hope you're right that that's not something that can stay locked down, at least not for long. Is that what you're seeing in Minnesota? I mean, it's Minnesota's sort of a interesting state. It's a difficult state to predict sometimes in terms politically. But um, is that what you're seeing? Is there a burgeoning consensus that we have to do something to reopen and resume life? It's interesting because it depends where in Minnesota you are. Mm -hmm. Obviously, when you get more into the metro area and the city, people are sort of, you know, hyper sensitive to mask wearing and people don't really know what to believe and then once you sort of get more outside of the metro area people are just saying i'm i can take care of my own health i'm facing a virus where if you're under 50 the death rate is close to nothing to people your age i mean the the people that you talk to again i mean you're not a spokesman for millennials the the world over but but i mean in your travels both reporting commentating talking to people in your age group do, do they understand just how 
infinitesimal the risk is to them if they don't have an underlying condition of any sort? I believe so, yes. The consensus I've, I've heard from the people I've talked to, it changes. Because if you're about 30 and under, I've seen the consensus of what people I've talked to change as you get older, and rightfully so. But 30 and under, people are pretty much, I can go out, I'm fine. I'm going to be fine. In fact, the risk to people 24 and under is actually the seasonal flu becomes more deadly. This is according to CDC data. Right. Once you hit 25 and up, then it gets slightly, slightly more deadly, but not by much. So people are very much aware. And I actually think this is because of extended lockdowns and fatigue. People are fatigued by this. So they're less likely to take it seriously. And it is a serious matter, but if you look at the statistics, you look at the death rate and, you know, the case, or should I say case fatality rate, we take that risk daily even before the pandemic. She is Alyssa Algren. She's a political commentator and syndicated columnist at Alpha News. That's alphanewsmn.com. I'll uh, tweet out her uh, op-ed, what the shutdown has taught us. Very good. I'm, I'm impressed. Alyssa Algren, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Take care. And uh, flying off that conversation with Alyssa Algren, there's a good time to remind uh, our listeners that for a limited time only, you can save 25% off No Safe Spaces uh, if you use the discount code SAVE25, No Safe Spaces. You know what it is. The No More Political Documentary of 2019, the film that our friend Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla put together documenting the assault on free thinking and free speaking in a free America. This uh, is a film that... Uh, provides commentary from across the political spectrum in defense of free speech and also provides you with uh, some options for how to get involved to advance that cause as well. For a limited time only, again, use the discount code SAVE25 and you you get 25% off No Safe Spaces, nosafespaces.com, and you can watch it as many times as you want until the end of May. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And uh, during this uh, time of pandemic and lockdowns and new protocols for appearing in public. Some have not lost their sense of humor, at least. That's the good news. This story comes to us from Kiev, Ukraine. No, and it doesn't involve President Trump and Zelensky. No, it doesn't involve Hunter Biden and Burisma. It involves a woman going to the post office and uh, being told that a mask is required for her to be served. (laughs) Didn't have a mask. It was mandated. She wasn't going to be helped by the post office employees. So she removed her underwear and put her underwear over her head. (laughs) She, no one has banned the use of panties instead of a mask yet. Okay. All right. Um, As I said, sense of humor in uh, difficult times, good. Loss of humanity in difficult times, not so good. And that brings us to our next guest. She is Abby Johnson, former Planned Parenthood director turned pro-life advocate, founder of And Then There Were None Ministry, and the author of Unplanned, which, of course, was optioned into a movie that, if you haven't seen it yet, do check it out on the streaming services. It is most excellent, Abby Johnson's story. 
is the, is the unplanned story. Abby, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, of course. So glad to be with you. And so you write about another instance uh, that is less less graphic um, and much more poignant that occurred in a in a public setting where you were shopping for your eight kids. Oh my goodness! And um, you ran into an older gentleman who uh, needed some help. Tell us uh, what transpired and and how that incident uh, informed your thinking about uh, how we're treating each other during these times. Yeah, he was an older gentleman, and he was studying the formula aisle, the grocery store, which is a little overwhelming, uh, I'm sure, if you're not a student of formula. I sort of I asked him, I said, you know, can I help you find something? And he explained to me that his daughter, she was staying with him during this time. She had been laid off um, because of the pandemic, and she had forgotten her formula at her home. She lived out of town. And so anyway, I said, oh, I said, well, do you need me to help you find the right one? And he said, no, I, I know which one I need. It's just so expensive. And he said, I didn't know formula was so expensive. And I said, yes, sir, it really is. And so anyway, we, we started talking for a minute. And so I, you know, we sort of, he sort of walked off and I walked off and I just really felt this, you know, nudging in my heart, just, you know, buy the formula for this guy. So <laughs> I went and bought two cans and I ran to the, I left my basket there. I ran to the self-checkout really fast. I bought a couple cans. I went and found them in the other aisle and I gave it to him. And I said, sir, I know, I know how expensive this stuff is. I've, you know, fed eight babies. And so I gave it to him and he just, you know, started to cry. And uh, he said, you just don't know what a blessing this is to me. And uh, he said, I was, he said, you know, if I'm honest with you, he said, I was standing there looking at this, thinking of, of how I was going to feel this can of formula. And he said, because my wife and I, he said, we just live on a very fixed income. And he said, we don't have an extra $20 to spend on formula. And he said, you know, that, that may seem stupid. And uh, he said, I've never stolen anything before in my life. He said, but I've got to feed my grandbabies. And I said, no, that's not stupid. You know, I said, I understand. I said, well, now you don't have to. And, you know, we just hugged and you know, neither one of us had masks on and neither one of us were thinking about this virus or anything like that. We weren't thinking about social distancing, you know, it was just, I just, you know, I worry about how we're losing our humanity during these times. And, and I worry about those who are being left behind because of this, you know, when we've got, you know, more people filing unemployment than we do filing into our hospitals because of this virus. I'm concerned. And, and I mean, and against this backdrop, too, and, to, and you know, with a recognition that human beings are uh, social creatures and that um, uh, many of us are called to try to be our brother's keeper the best we can. Well, one of the other uh, features of this moment is, uh, you know, the, the loss of access in a significant way to places of worship, you know, across all denominations and and uh and and faith and faith traditions and and so you know that this could be a real place of refuge for people who are struggling in a difficult time 100 percent, yeah and and i mean and let's be real i mean i know that i've you know i've sort of been i mean i've taken a lot of heat for this but i mean places of worship shouldn't have ever have been forced to close in the first place that's entirely unconstitutional now Am I saying that they shouldn't have taken precautions? Am I saying that they shouldn't have temporarily closed? No, absolutely not. But what I am saying is that it's concerning to me that in the state of Virginia, 
when there was a possibility that gun rights could be taken away, which I'm total supporter of the Second Amendment, by the way, but when there was a possibility that gun rights could be taken away, that there were tens of thousands of people showed up to protest the possibility of gun rights being removed. But then when our churches were being forced to close, that Christians all around the country just rolled over and took it. And there were no protests. Nobody was standing up and saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This seems unconstitutional. This seems like a violation of our First Amendment. Everybody just said, well, okay, you know, it seems like it's okay. It's concerning to me that people seem to be more up in arms, (laughs) pun intended, about losing our Second Amendment rights than they are about losing our First Amendment rights and our freedom to worship and our freedom to assemble. That's incredibly concerning to me. Yeah. It would be concerning to all Christians. Yeah, and, and, you know, there have been some good stories, uh, like in Minnesota, where Catholic bishops uh, teamed up with Lutherans, uh, Lutheran Missouri Synod, to go against the governor's uh, stringent order that allowed only 10 people in uh, places of worship in that state and and, and got some relief. So that's good. But I got to say, for example, as a Catholic who lives in Chicago and Illinois, you know, the archdiocese in, in Chicago has gone right along with these orders. And so it's difficult to to you know, complain uh, uh, about what the state is doing when you have the leadership of some churches, some archdioceses, some places of worship in different parts of the country that uh, are just willingly going along. You know, sort of if you don't fight for yourself, then who will? Yeah, exactly right. It's been incredibly disheartening. And I know it's been the same in our diocese where I live. And, you know, I mean, I'm so thankful of what's going on in Minnesota. But I mean, it's like, well, it's about time. Yeah, right. Um, this should have been, I mean, this should have been happening from from the very beginning. Uh, and then when it comes to, um, uh, you know, relief, just getting into the matter of, uh, of the pro-life movement, uh, you know, the, the, the back and forth over Planned Parenthood uh, receiving uh, federal funding as part of the CARES Act uh, and, and, mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, just the concern about uh, as the federal government is distributing trillions of dollars that uh, Planned Parenthood <laughs> insinuates itself in there. Oh, yeah, right. They get $80 million, um, illegally get $80 million, and now, and they know it's illegal. They know they don't qualify, right? But they get $80 million of money that they know they don't qualify for. They take it anyway, and now that people are demanding that they, that they give it back, now they're trying to separate themselves from Planned Parenthood Federation of America saying that they are no way in no way affiliated with Planned Parenthood Federation of America. Okay, even though they pay dues to Planned Parenthood Federation of America, even though they are yearly audited by Planned Parenthood Federation of America, I mean, they are reaching so far. I mean, I, I don't even understand. Like, it, they are so desperate for money grab when they don't even need it. I mean, they've stayed open during this whole pandemic. They have been they have been committing abortions during this pandemic and have even fundraised one local affiliate fundraised almost a million dollars during this pandemic. They've been making hand over fist because they have been inciting fear in the hearts of women during this pandemic. They've been making all this money, yet anytime there's a there's a cheap money grab for them, they take it. So they illegally take eighty million dollars, which is I mean, that's just par for the course for them. They're always participating in Medicaid fraud. They're always doing everything that they can to illegally grab money. And they're also uh, uh, were designated in so many states as an essential service, even as other, quote unquote, uh, elective uh, surgeries were prohibited. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They know. Well, on one hand, they're like, you know, and they talk out of both sides of their mouth. So on one hand, they're like, 
oh, abortion's no big deal. You know, it's just like removing a clump of cells. It's absolutely nothing. It's like, you know, it's not even as big as having a wisdom tooth removed. And then on the other hand, they're like, abortion is, is it's life or death. It's, you know, women have to have access to it. Okay, well, which is it? I mean, is it like no big deal or is it the biggest deal on the planet? Because, it, I mean, it can't be both, mm. right? So is it completely non-essential, as you're saying, or is it completely vitally essential? And in one hand, it depends on who they're talking to. It depends on their audience. So it's either, you know, completely non-essential if you're talking to the public as like a PR stunt, um, or is it completely essential when you need to keep your clinics open and you need money? She is Abby Johnson, plan, uh, former Planned Parenthood director turned pro-life advocate, founder of And Then There Were None Ministry, author of Unplanned, which, uh, as you should know, was optioned into a movie. And if you haven't seen it, you can do so on the streaming services. Please do. Abby Johnson, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Now it cuts like a knife. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Ovik Roy over at uh, Forbes. The most important COVID-19 statistic. 43% of U.S. deaths are from six-tenths of the population. 43% of U.S. deaths from COVID-19 are from six-tenths of the population. That's six-tenths residents of nursing homes and assisted living facilities. Six-tenths of the population, 43% of the deaths. But we're told by Melinda Gates, COVID anywhere is COVID everywhere. You know, ask the policymakers. Even Andrew Cuomo is uh, sort of sheepishly conceding what everybody knows to be true, that the models he based so much of his decision-making on were wrong, although he won't go so far as to concede that his catastrophic decision to reintroduce infected patients into nursing homes cost thousands and thousands of lives. We all failed at that business, right? All the early national experts, uh, here's my projection model, here's my projection model. They were all wrong. They were all wrong. It's interesting because he didn't say they would have been right if if we didn't do what we did. He just said they're wrong. Uh, and, and as uh, we're having to reckon with who was being thoughtful and who was being driven by anxiety or even worse motives, there's a good example of the two. Joe Kiernan on CNBC Squaring off against his CNBC mate, Aaron Ross Sorkin, former New York Times reporter, and actually the co-creator of Billions, which I like, although season five, I think it's starting to fade. But that's a topic for another time. Uh, Aaron Sorkin and Joe Kern on CNBC. Aaron Sorkin, uh, fear, fear, fear for the last two months. Joe Kiernan, measure, measure, measure for the last two months, and they get into it, but good. You panicked about the market, panicked about COVID, panicked about the ventilators, panicked about the PPE, panicked about ever going out again, panicked and that we'd ever Joseph, get back to normal. Joseph, you didn't panic what about anything. That? What good is it? Why Joseph, not, why not help people, people die. keep their head? I, I understand 100,000 people died, Joe, and all you did was try to help your friend, the president. That's what you did every single morning on this show. 
every single morning it, it on this had, show. It, it you abused and abused your position, that's Joe. That's totally unfair. You abused and abused your position. I'm trying to help investors keep their cool, keep their heads. And as it turned out, that's what, you know what they should have done. That's what they should have the done. They should have the kept their heads. If they had listened to you, Andrew, we're supposed to be at about 8,000. I wasn't arguing to go sell your stocks, Joseph. I was arguing about people's lives. We understand. People's uh, Andrew, lives. Andrew, That's it's a the global argument. pandemic. Do the news. I'm begging you to do the news, Joseph. It's a global pandemic. I'm begging you. Andy, Please. It's a global pandemic, Andy, where per capita deaths, we're down near the low end of per capita deaths. We're nowhere near per 100,000. Most places are at 60 deaths per 100,000. We're at 29. So it's, un it's terrible that we've lost 100,000 lives. It's terrible. But it was never going to be that, that we weren't going to come back and that we weren't going to return to normal. And, you know, siding with Ackman and, and everything else, that, you know, giving credence to all that panic didn't help any investors at all or people with, with their anxiety and everything else. So that, that's why we're here, to try and navigate people through, not trying to help Donald Trump. It's going to be difficult to reconcile with some. By the way, um, just on the score, too, the, the latest panic is the possibility of sending kids back to school. Kevin Drum writing in Mother Jones, of all places. That is a hard left outlet. Rand Paul might be right about school closures, meaning they should open. He uh, looks at studies of school closures, uh, several studies, which we've talked about, and concludes... The only thing you can conclude, the best evidence we have seems to suggest that school closures have a fairly minimal effect taken on their own and a zero or maybe even negative effect when you net out the increase in COVID-19 deaths they cause indirectly. The case is for kids to go back to school. For more on all of this, we're pleased to be joined by another former New York Times reporter who would probably get into a similarly heated discussion with Aaron Ross Sorkin these days. He is Alex Berenson. He's also the author of Tell Your Children, The Truth About Marijuana, Mental Illness, and Violence. Alex, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Yeah, so uh, it's very interesting you mentioned, you mentioned Andrew Ross Sorkin. He's actually, like, he's an old friend of mine, a real friend. You know, we've been skiing together. Um, we've known each other a long time. Um, I don't know what we would talk about right now. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, uh, um, because, you know, I feel as strongly as Joe does, and I would push, you know, I would push very hard back on him on both the 100,000, uh, you know, death figure and who's actually dying and this notion somehow that we've never had anything like this before. I mean, all those things are not true. Uh, and, you know, it, it, you know it, it's just, it, it's not to say that people have not died. Of course, a lot of people have died and that's tragic, but people die every day in the United States. And a lot of people die from the flu every year in the United States. And it looks probably like more people died from COVID this season, <clears throat> I'm sorry, than the flu. Um, you know, in, in most years, but this is not unprecedented in any way. I mean, you know, you don't, you, that's a fact. Um, and so if we're going to talk about facts, we need to talk about facts. And uh, you, uh, you're talking about facts has um, ruffled the feathers of many of your uh, former colleagues in the, in the press corps, the Eastern Establishment Press Corps. And you, uh, you wrote about that recently, why you think that might be. Yes. Um, so I wrote a piece that, uh, you know, about the hate that I get from a lot of what I call the blue checks. Um, and of course, I have a blue check on Twitter. You have a blue check on Twitter, I, I think. Um, you know, it just means that you're sort of a, a member of the establishment. Often the media it could be business as well. 
it means that they've you know they've spent five minutes making sure that your account is who you say you are. It's not it's, it's not actually a big deal, but uh, but it 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 puts you uh, you know in a slightly different category on Twitter, I would say. And so so these people don't like me, and they don't like me because uh, you know because really for six or seven or eight weeks now it's been clear that although the risks of COVID are real and that although people are dying from it, the hospitals were not going to be overrun. There was going to be no ventilator shortage. There was going to be no PPE shortage. And, and you know, those of us who pointed this out early on, I think you were in category two, um, you know, we faced a lot of heat, incredible heat about this back in, in early April. But what's so troubling is that as the facts have rolled in in an incontrovertible way, the people who, 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 you know, who were predicting doom back in early April have refused to change their tune. And instead of saying, hey, this is manageable, let's figure out how to manage it. Let's figure out how to protect people in nursing homes. And then the rest of us, you know, and, and other people at high risk, who we can pretty clearly delineate, and then the rest of us need to get back to work and need to our, get back to our lives. They followed one um, you know, they've led us down one path after another that's turned out to be untrue. They told us we needed, you know, millions of tests every week when, in fact, the testing capacity we have is not being used. Now they're telling us we all need to wear masks when there's when there's very, very little evidence that masks would would meaningly impact, uh, you know, the, the spread of, of COVID in an important way. Now, there, there's some evidence, and I don't want to say there's none, and I don't want to say that people who are infected should not wear masks. That's not true. I don't want to say healthcare workers should not wear masks. Of course, that's not true. But for the general asymptomatic or uninfected population, and certainly outside, it doesn't look like masks make any difference. And so why are we being told we have to do this? When we come back with former New York Times reporter Alex Berenson, I'm going to go back to what uh, former state epidemiologist for Sweden, Johan Gusecki, said about uh, the lockdowns as well as talk about uh, the estimates of more than 70,000 deaths of despair. More with Alex Berenson coming up next. Everybody wants you. Yeah. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. We're back with former New York Times reporter and author Alex Berenson. And I want to uh, get back to what uh, former Swedish state epidemiologist Johan Gusecki said. That the, the problem is when you lock down, if you haven't thought it through, what are the metrics by which you open up? And, and they don't know how to reopen and they can't afford to, to have their metrics used against them. And so if they see a spike in cases, then they can say, well, wait a second, why did we do all this if it was to flatten the curve and prevent a spike in cases? And now we see a spike right. in cases. And, and so, so, so they, they put themselves in an intellectual corner that they are having a difficult time figuring their way out of, as predicted. Yes. Yes. Um, I, I, that, that's true. So, so what I will say is that the, some of the media stuff has been uh, just gross, especially especially in the last couple of weeks around kids, this effort to, you know, say that all these kids are dying of this inflammatory syndrome. Again, it, it's, there may be an inflammatory syndrome. It's not clear at this point. Uh, well, it's Kawasaki, but there, there's some evidence it's not. And there's some evidence that, you know, kids can have really robust immune systems and some of them 
unfortunately might overreact to a, you know, to a virus in their blood and they ultimately wind up with some kind of autoimmune disorder. But that we know that that can happen. It happens with other viruses, too. It doesn't make this one different or 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 more devastating. What we know beyond a doubt is that more children have died of the flu this year uh, than covid. And, you know, that needs to be said over and over and over again, or else the schools are not going to get reopened properly and fully in the fall. Fatality rate for a 25 years old and under is one in one point two five million. Incredible. I mean, Incredible. And, 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 and now the flip side, too, because all the other focus, and this is where the media is really shameful, too. The focus is on what you see or what they want you to see and not what is unseen because it doesn't set up so well for the stories. But these lives matter, too, to borrow a phrase, lives versus lives. Just in my home county, DuPage County, Illinois, which is uh, the second most populous county in the state of Illinois behind Cook County. The sheriff's office recently put out an analysis, DuPage County Sheriff's Office, county of a million people, 43 percent increase in service calls, 100 percent increase in residential burglary, 116 percent increase in domestic incidents, 254 percent increase in theft, 400 percent increase in suicides, 400 percent increase in overdoses. Uh, Do those, uh, you know, year over year statistics, those lives, are, are they relevant for the discussion, too, in terms of policy implications? Right, right. And, and by the way, the, the overdose numbers, it's interesting you mentioned those because I, I, we don't have national, uh, you know, good national sort of real-time numbers. We have a real-time COVID death clock that, that you know, that updates every 15 seconds. Right. We have no idea how many people are dying of overdoses except these sort of random uh, data points, all of which look terrible. Um, it's true in Dayton, Ohio. It's true in San Francisco. Uh, you know, first of all, the police are sort of, you know, they, they basically stop arresting people for, uh, you know, for selling drugs, it looks like in a lot of the country. And second of all, people don't have NA or AA meetings to go to. And third of all, people are just bored and lonely and stressed. And, uh, you know, and they're using drugs and, and, and they're dying, you know, Dayton, Dayton, which is a, you know, uh, uh, sort of a, uh, not a, you know, socioeconomically not great, San Francisco, very wealthy, uh, DuPage, you know, you know, somewhere in the middle, those places don't necessarily have that much in common, but what they do have in common apparently is that a lot of people are dying and dying of overdoses right now. Well, he, here's the thing, you know, we, as you said, but we've been, we, we, this is not unprecedented, the viral outbreak. It's, it's also not unprecedented to have the sort of severe unemployment, maybe as quick as it's come, it's unprecedented, but 40 million people, first time unemployment filers over the last nine weeks with another 2 million yep. added today. Um, and we know Economic devastation has public health impacts. We've been through recessions before. This has been studied before. So we know when you destroy people economically, you see an increase in addiction. You see an increase in suicides. And we and, and you know, there are studies that basically track it for every percentage point. The unemployment rate increases. So this should not be a surprise to anybody. Nope, it should not. And the media does not seem to care. And I don't I don't understand it. Um, And look, everybody's life matters. Uh, but but to me, you have to you know you have to you have to be honest and say that you know a six year old who has a whole life ahead of him is not the same as somebody who's eighty seven years old with dementia in a nursing home who you know who's not going to live to the end of the year either way. And I you know I don't know when that saying that became impossible. Okay, but but it seems to be impossible right now, and that's why you know that that's why I. I that's why this has been so hard the last couple of months, because we're not allowed we're not allowed to make any rational decisions anymore, it seems like. 
He is Alex Berenson, former New York Times reporter, gone rogue, author of Tell, <laughs> Tell Your Children the Truth About Marijuana, Mental Illness, and Violence. Uh, yeah, I don't know if they're going to let me back on the reservation. You're anymore. not. No. You are not going to be invited to the alumni parties. That is for sure. <laughs> thanks, guys. Alex, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Yanon Weiss, who's a tech entrepreneur and a bioengineer by education, is doing a multi-part series at realclearpolitics.com. Uh, here's his uh, part two intro. And this is how media sensationalism and big tech bias extended lockdowns. His summary. Epidemiologists created faulty lockdown models. The media promoted fear. Politicians assumed worst case scenarios. And big tech suppressed dissenting views. This is how people's fears grew disproportional to reality and how seemingly short term lockdowns stretched into months. Did you know, as of May 20, the CDC estimates the coronavirus has an overall infection fatality rate of 0.26%. A fraction of the original estimates. The uh, CDC further estimates people under the age of 50 have a 99.97% survival rate. COVID-19 hospitalizations dropped 38% within weeks of reopening in Georgia. Some schools in Montana and Idaho have reopened for weeks with no drama. Wisconsin had all of its lockdown restrictions struck down by the state Supreme Court on May 13th. And 10 days later, hospitals there were treating around 400 COVID-19 patients across a state of 6 million. New York City the epicenter of the outbreak in the United States, has had fewer than 100 total deaths from COVID-19 cases without pre-existing conditions. And if you're surprised, you shouldn't be, as uh, he documents the media fear cycle that I've been talking about since the outset, where all the incentives were for the politicians. The media fear cycle. Media gives dire warnings. Politicians amplify message. People get scared. Politicians gain control. Rinse and repeat. For more on the politics of fear, we're pleased to be joined again by our friend John Tierney, Contributing editor to the City Journal, former reporter and columnist at the New York Times, who's probably about as welcome there as Alex Berenson is these days, and co-author of The Power of Bad, How the Negativity Effect Rules Us and How We Can Rule It. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. It's great to be here. Uh, so uh, in uh, this most recent piece for City Journal, uh, The Politics of Fear, um, you uh, spoke with uh, the economic historian Robert Higgs. I was interested in it because, gosh, I read his book, Crisis and Leviathan, 30 years ago, and Boy, if he was worried about Leviathan now, he's uh, exponentially more worried about it 30 years later. Yeah, it's really, I mean, it's just gotten crazier and crazier. You know, that is such a great book, Crisis in Leviathan. Uh, Roy Baumeister and I drew on it in, in The Power of Bad. We have a chapter on the crisis crisis. He really documented, you know, how the government just ratchets up during crises. You know, that ordinarily it's hard to really expand it that much. People don't want higher taxes and their special interests are all kind of competing against each other. So they're sort of a logjam. But then, you know, when a crisis comes along, they just seize it as, you know, um, as an excuse to do something, and they ratchet up the government, and then it never gets back to its former size. It just ratchets up. Um, and what I was really struck about about uh, Higgs, too, is that he recognized, the, you know, the negativity effect early on, that, you know, that's the universal tendency for bad events to affect us more strongly than good ones. And he recognized how politicians, how government use that effect. They prey on fear. The government is basically 
built on scaring people. Um, you know, the early governments were founded by warriors who, you know, threatened to kill you if you didn't follow their orders. And then, as he said, they supplemented that with, with religious leaders who got people in fear of their souls, and, and they sort of ruled together. And then in the 19th century, you get the welfare state, which is the you know, government introduces all these new fears of, the, of, you know, that you'll lose a job, you'll be sick, you'll be something else. And basically, you know, and it's now become that anything that might scare the people, the government will take care of it. They promote the fears, you know, with the help of the media, and then they promise to solve them and they expand their power in doing that. Uh, one of the Higgs quotes I really enjoyed from your piece Without popular fear, no government could endure more than 24 hours. Um, the, the idea is that, uh, you know, inciting fear is not a bug of government. It's the feature. It's absolutely it. And it's the feature of media, too. You know, with the, in The Power of Bad, we, uh, we talk about the merchants of bad. And basically, their politicians and journalists are the main merchants. You know, marketers of various kinds. But it's the easiest way to get people's attention and to get them to obey, too. To, you know, you scare them. So, so we, you know, we just had these, you know, and it, it happens all the time that, you know, these worst case scenarios, you scare everyone and then you seize new power, you pass new rules, um, you, you do stuff that you wanted to do beforehand, but no, you know, but, but, but it gives you an excuse to do it. And, you know, as we've seen in COVID, it, you know, by overreacting to crises, we make ourselves um, less able to deal with things. You know, one of the reasons we had this horrible botched response at the beginning from the CDC and FDA is that they they had so many regulations and they were doing they were you know dealing with so many other supposed crises. You know, the the CDC was worrying about vaping and obesity and and racism and and all these supposed crises that it wasn't doing. Its core mission is to deal with infectious diseases. That's why it started. Mm. And they basically were just distracted by this stuff. And the FDA had so many rules to protect us from the, you know, dangers of of, of supposedly unsafe products that basically, you know, that, that it was preventing people from getting um, tests and preventing people from getting uh, protective equipment. You know, there were all these, all this red tape. And, and, and you know, some of the silver linings, including uh, that we've discussed on this show, could be uh, a reduction in the regulatory state. That could be a, a guard against the sort of mission creep you're describing at CDC. But uh, Higgs suggests that uh, the net effect, the net impact is going to be government grows, gets bigger, gets more intrusive, uh, gets more powerful, as, and you seem to subscribe to that uh, notion as well. Well, you know, I, I, I may be a little more optimistic than you know the, uh, uh, than Higgs, and that I, I mean, one change we do have now is that in the past, when the, you know, like the Great Depression, we you know we elect FDR, the, the ultimate activist government, who tells you know who tells us that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, and then exploits that fear to you know massively grow the government. Then after the 2008 fiscal crisis, you know, we elected Obama, who was a great, you know, expansion of government, and we have all these new financial regulations. There is, the one difference now is that Trump, you know, has always has certainly been committed. He says he's committed to deregulation, and he has done a lot of deregulation. You can argue about how much, but, you know, he, he at least is committed to that. So maybe, you know, it would be nice if they could use this crisis, you know, as a way to get rid of regulations. And we have gotten, you know, they've suspended more than 400 regulations and, you know, that, that restricted doctors from op- from operating across state lines, you know, restrictions on telemedicine, some of the red tape at the FDA. So it would be nice to think that, you know, that, 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 that they would, you know, just get rid of those things when this is over. Um, 
and and I'm you know I'm hopeful there. But Higgs thinks that yeah maybe they'll get rid of some of them, but the net effect is going to be bigger government. Well, um, uh, again, and, let's, and what I worry about, let's, also, uh, John, let's hold I, it. Let's hold it right there, and and we'll pick up uh, what you're worried about. And I also want to get your comment on one of the other dynamics at play here. I think, which is uh, the um, ever-present problem of concentrated benefits and diffuse costs. More with John Tierney from City Journal, author of The Power of Bad, right after this. Mama, if that's moving up, then I'm moving out. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to The Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with John Tierney, contributing editor of the City Journal, former reporter and columnist for The New York Times, and co-author of The Power of Bad, How the Negativity Effect Rules Us and How We Can Rule It. And, John, before the break, uh, we were talking about uh, what the net result of the size and scope of government will be after the pandemic, and uh, you were about to uh, explain what worries you. Well, what worries me are some of the precedents we're setting here. I mean, aside from there's going to be lots of, of new rules and things, and, I mean, some of the, the rules might be helpful if they actually require hospitals to have protective equipment on, on hand, although you'd think the hospitals would have learned a lesson by now. What I worry about is the precedent that in the past when there was a bad flu season, we lived with it. You know, we accepted, you know, that the, the Hong Kong flu in the late 60s killed more people than COVID has so far, and yet we didn't shut down the economy. We, you know, the Woodstock Festival went on. But now that we have this precedent that, oh, my God, if there's a bad virus out there, we suddenly have to shut everything down because we can't allow anybody to die from it, even if it mainly affects people who, who have pre-existing conditions, who have a fairly short life expectancy. As long as there's any danger there, we have to start doing this. And if that becomes the precedent, then, you know, the, 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 that's a really dangerous one. I mean, I'm really hoping that they get a vaccine for this, but my fear is that if they do get a vaccine, the new rule will be, well, if any new virus comes along, we shut everything down until we get a vaccine, Right. Um, which is just not a way to run a society. It's going to impoverish us, and it will, you know, end up causing much more damage, both to health and, and other things, than the virus itself. Uh, and, and the issue, too, of just government's growth, um, it, you know, it's age old. And as uh, you write, any new program typically creates a powerful coalition committed to its preservation, the Iron Triangle, consisting of a legislative committee, an administrative bureaucracy and a group of special interests reaping the benefits from the program. This is what the public choice theorists call concentrated benefits and diffuse costs. And and that's what all of these new programs that are being stood up under uh, these uh, disaster relief bills or within administrative or public health agencies. And it's very difficult to unwind them, as we have seen over the course of the last 240 years. Exactly. I, I, I mean, you get these these lobbyists, you know, and, and the principle again, it's a negativity effect. Where once you people um, fear losses much more than they appreciate gains. So once you give someone a benefit, once this you know iron triangle gets set up, they they do not want to lose their benefits. They do not want to lose their power, and so they fight so hard to keep it. And the, and and you know, and as you say, the diffused benefits. You know, all of us taxpayers are hurt by it. Diffused costs and that loss yeah. to society. But none of us is going to go to Washington and hire a lobbyist to get rid of some obscure bureaucracy or, or regulation. So, so you know, they prosper and they just keep growing. That's why Washington, you know, keeps keeps getting richer and richer. You know, the richest counties in the country around Washington as power gets you know gathers there, and uh, each new rule just creates you know more work for them to do. 
that helps to understand why things are the way they are. There always a, there's always a reason, and uh, I think you're I think you're uh, over the target. He is John Tierney, contributing editor of the City Journal, former reporter and columnist at the New York Times, and co-author of The Power of Bad: How the Negativity Effect Rules Us and How We Can Rule It. John, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dan. Take care. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. Trump's uh, forthcoming executive order on Twitter and other social media platforms and what's believed to be the direction of it, dealing with Section 230 and the legal immunity that the social media platforms have, being characterized not as publishers, but just platforms, conduits for communication. And Matt Gates, a Republican congressman from Florida, suggesting he would be introducing legislation in that direction as well. well. Let's start there with Carrie Severino, who is the president of the Judicial Crisis Network and a member of the Federalist Society. She is a Harvard Law grad. She is also a clerk for Justice Clarence Thomas, so she knows a thing or two about constitutional law, perfect person to continue our discussion with. Carrie, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Great to be here. Um, so on the matter of President Trump uh, and you know his sort of tweeting about uh, regulate or shut them down, the, the belief that you know he's uh, trying to use the bully pulpit to uh, move the corporate boardroom over there in Jack Dorsey land. But with respect to this executive order, if it is in the direction of their legal immunity, treating them as publishers of information and stripping them of that immunity, that does not run afoul of First Amendment protections, does it? Uh, you know, so this is an area that you have, we have to be really careful about because the government is being involved in First Amendment issues. You know, the freedom of, even if they are, if they are a publisher, the freedom of press still comes into play here. So I think this is a line that Twitter, that Facebook all have been trying to avoid triggering for a long time. You know, they want to say, oh, well, we're just letting people put up. I think the challenge is they're all going to start running uh, foul of it if they are censoring certain content. And that's one of the reasons that's become a real big issue is, okay, if you're the one who is coming up with content, then it's hard for you to just say we have no responsibility uh, for what's up here. I think still, though, even if they were a publisher, you do have to be uh, careful that there's not viewpoint discrimination on the, on the behalf of the government and that they're not uh, censoring uh, what is then a press, even if it is a, a uniquely one-sided press. We know that that's not, not unique in the publishing. Front, right, but, but, but just stripping them of immunity from uh, libel suits uh, is not does not run afoul of the First Amendment. I mean, the New York Times is not immune from libel suits, right? right? So, Absolutely. Yeah, just limited in scope. And this, so this is why specificity really matters. And, and so I just, is Trump headed in the right direction if he is that specific, even though he's going to face... Uh, you know, the, the hue and cry from the press corps and from social media platforms about it. Uh, yeah, you know, I think this is something that we still need to look at. It's a growing area of First Amendment law because this isn't a, you know, the Internet is, is new on this front. But exactly right, libel laws do apply to press organizations. Now, it's interesting, they typically have been given a slightly wider berth 
in libel, if, even if you consider Twitter to be like part of the media as opposed to just a platform that, you know, a bulletin board people can put their deepest thoughts on, that would mean uh, that this court might be forced to quest to consider again whether we should give broader protections to libel laws for media organizations. Justice Thomas actually has written about that saying, you know, this standard is a little goofy. Why should they not have to answer for their inaccurate reporting, just like anyone else would have to answer for inaccurate uh, statements about people. So that could trigger a whole new constitutional investigation. Uh, I want to uh, talk about some skullduggery afoot in the judicial branch. The Wall Street Journal opined on this a couple of months ago, if I'm recalling correctly, the issue of trying to uh, punish the Federalist Society for its success Federalist Society and the executive director, Leonard Leo, being a close advisor to the president on making recommendations for qualified originalist jurists for appointments to the federal bench, appointments to the Supreme Court, the Gorsuches and the Kavanaugh's of the world. And now there is a a committee on codes of conduct that want to uh, make it essentially unethical to join the Federalist Society. Explain. So the Federalist Society, I think, on the left gets painted as this sort of nefarious secret society somehow with choosing judges. That is not actually what's happening. It's, it's an organization of conservative and libertarian lawyers that spans a very wide range. They're, they started as a debate society on campuses because we realized that law schools only were presenting one point of view, and it was a liberal point of view. So they would have debates on both sides. And if you go to any federal society debate, some, the liberal perspective is always well represented as well as the conservative or the libertarian perspective. What has happened is that system has been so successful, it's provided an opportunity for so many young lawyers and you know, grown-up lawyers like me to engage in these ideas that it becomes a real place where a lot of conservatives go meet, get to know each other. And so when you start seeing all these young, young lawyers who were members of the federal society, the left is painting it, and, and Senator Whitehouse is one of the forefronts that, oh, this is this evil group choosing judges. It's not true. This is a group that a lot of conservatives and libertarian lawyers happen to belong to, so it's natural that Trump would be choosing his judges from the people who were active in that world. But now what they're trying to do is make it, it's basically cancel culture coming to the judicial bench saying, you can't even be a member of this organization, even though they very, are very careful not to take positions on litigation or on legislation. They say you can't be a member of it, but they're happy to let judges be a member of the numerous other bar associations or affinity associations like the American Bar Association or their state bar associations or groups like the Hispanic Bar Association, et cetera, that take positions on things. And they're free to. The ACLU, for example. doesn't. Yeah. They can't be part of it. It's kind of a nefarious attempt to block out yet a conservative thought from yet another area of life. So, so how does that fight shake itself out? Well, what we've seen is there's a panel on the ethics rules for judges that for a long time has said, oh, yeah, the Federal Society is totally fine. You can be a member. The American Bar Association, sure, you can be a member. Now they've come out with a draft opinion, and it's interesting because one of the members of that commission, it was put on the bench as a Rhode Island judge by Senator Whitehouse, who's the senator who has this bee in his bonnet over the Federalist Society. They have now said, we're not going to let judges be a member of the Federalist Society, but you can go ahead and be a member of the American Bar Association and, and other groups like that, even though they are they're much more political. And what we see now, two, a letter by over 200 judges, federal judges, who have been appointed by every president from Gerald R. Ford on. This is a bipartisan group saying, that's not appropriate. If you do this, then you're going to have to require judges not to be involved in almost any organization. You're the board of your local private school that the kids run. Well, they have a position on a certain issues. You can't be a member of that. Or of a religious organization or church. Well, they have to take positions on issues. You can't be a member of that. That's never been the rule. And it's particularly nefarious when you see this 
pair of a judge and a senator that seem to be working together on this when the judge should be at this point totally you know, outside of that political realm. But unfortunately, what we've seen from Judge McConnell is he tweets against the president. He's engaged in things like this. So it's a real area of concern. Since uh, you and uh, Molly Hemingway wrote the definitive book on the Kavanaugh confirmation saga, I wanted to get your reaction to the coverage so far of Tara Reid's allegations to Joe Biden, uh, including uh, some remarkable op-eds and statements from Ilhan Omar, from Susan Faludi, I believe, uh, well, not, not necessarily Susan Flutie saying I believe Tara Reid, but basically saying that the position always was we believe all women in terms of who they say they are. But in terms of allegations now, it's been recast as yeah, obviously you have to look at the merits of the particular allegation. That's number one. And number two, you have people like Omar, actually, who are saying, I believe Tara Reid. I believe she was sexually assaulted by Joe Biden, but I'm voting for him anyway because it's more important to get uh, Trump. Uh, the most important thing is to get Trump out of office. First of all, about the always, I was always just about investigate the, the allegations. Completely false. That is not the standard they applied uh, in 2018 when Justice Kavanaugh was being considered. If you were just saying, I want to look at all allegations based on the evidence, you would have to conclude that Tara Reid's allegations have a whole lot more evidence than Christine Blasey Ford's allegations ever did. We don't even have evidence. Ford has ever met Kavanaugh. We know that Reid worked for Biden. We know that she had talked to people in 1993 in real time about these allegations. That doesn't make them true. We st- I don't think we still know have enough evidence to know that. But you can't say, I believe Ford and not Reid. You could say, I, I don't believe either. You could say, I believe them both because I just believe women regardless. But they're not applying the same standard they did then because then it was guilty until proven innocent. My organization has been running TV ads now talking about the contrast. And you look at some of these senators and governors and things who are now on Joe Biden's shortlist for VP. These people are outrageous in the complete about face that they have made over how they treated Kavanaugh, where even having Senate hearings wasn't enough, even having an FBI investigation wasn't enough. It could having every press organization in the country breathing down the neck of every person who ever seen Judge Kavanaugh was not enough investigation. Now they're willing to kind of Look at Tara Reid and saying, oh, well, she was interviewed by Mika Brzezinski. That's enough for me. I've, I've seen it. Or he, he was interviewed. They don't even need, need to have really talked to her and heard her story. That's shocking to see the contrast. You can acknowledge and say, you know what, I don't think we're going to consider any decades-old allegations like that unless there's some real hard proof. That's fine. You can have a, a standard that's consistent on both sides, but you cannot have it where Republicans and Republican nominees are guilty until proven innocent. Joe Biden, it doesn't matter what he's done ever because we're going to just need to, to defeat Trump. That's, that's all politics, and that has nothing to do with the real principles of how should how should we um, deal with allegations of sexual assault. She is Carrie Severino, president of the Judicial Crisis Network and member of the Federal Society. Carrie, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show after reading the interview she gave at the daily signal which is the heritage foundation publication uh, very Interested to speak with uh, our next guest. She is Sue Ellen Browder. She's a former writer for Cosmopolitan magazine and author of Subverted, How I Helped the Sexual Revolution Hijack the Women's Movement. 
uh, and most recently of Sex and the Catholic Feminist, New Choices for a New Generation. She has a fascinating road to Damascus journey, and we want to discuss it with her. Sue Ellen Browder, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Um, one of the, the points you made in your interview with The Daily Signal I thought was really salient. I haven't heard it quite put this way and so succinctly. You uh, talk about what you wrote for Cosmo for 20 years as propaganda, but you say, you know, it's very sophisticated, half-truth, selected truth, and truth out of context. Unpack that for us, will you? Well, people think propaganda is a bunch of lies, and they think because we have a so-called free press, we can't possibly have propaganda in our nation. But propaganda is much more subtle than that. It's half-truth, limited truth, and truth out of context. Even Goebbels, who worked with Hitler, always insisted that their communiques be as accurate as possible. So that's why it's so hard to spot propaganda, because it's partial truth. Can you give us an example of, uh, of how that approach manifests itself, maybe in something you wrote once upon a time? Well, for example, when we wrote for Cosmopolitan, I wrote for Cosmopolitan for about 20 years. And Helen Gurley Brown, who was the editor of Cosmo, actually had a list of rules on how to make up stories. A lot of the facts in those stories were true, but the things that were false were the sexual revolution, the sexual revolution worldview, if you will. That if you just go out and do all these wonderful things that all these women in these, these stories are doing, you'll have this happy life. Well, those women were made up. So you weren't going to have a happy life when you went out and followed those rules. But uh, Helen Gurley Brown was selling products to women. We were selling um, commercial products to women. How do you sell um, beautiful hair products, um, singles travel, abortion, contraception, all of these things that are in, in the pages of women's magazines? You sell them by selling the Cosmo lifestyle. And once a young woman thinks that the Cosmo lifestyle is for her, she'll just naturally start to buy all those other products. I mean, specifically, this is Jason Blair quality plagiarism. One of the rules is outlined here. Unless you are a recognized authority on the subject, profound statements must be attributed to somebody appropriate, even if the writer has to invent the authority. Right. So the stories were invented, the authorities were invented, but you have to remember that a lot of this Cosmo, then and now, and all of these other sex revolution groups are based on um, Kinsey's fault science, who we go way back to the 40s and 50s. When Kinsey made up all of these um, statistics, his statistics were full of malarkey, and the American people bought it. Why did they buy it? Because the media sold it to them. One of the other things that you say, this is a fascinating uh, look at how propaganda works, too. Most of the writers were in New York, but most of the readers of Cosmo were not in New York. So you had to make the lifestyle that uh, you were advocating uh, accessible to people in Des Moines or suburban Chicago right. or wherever. And so how did you do that? Right. Well, you just put them in those places. So, so <laughs> you make up women. Is... That, you just make up a woman in Des Moines, right? Yeah. You make. Well, you're gonna you're gonna make up this woman anyway. So you might as well put her in Des Moines sure. as opposed to New York City. No, but but this, I know. Is, this is important because right, it, it's a, to say, hey, Joan down the street is, uh, you know, you know, to to update the reference, one of the Sex in the City girls, and you can be too. Right, exactly. And what is Sex in the City? Well, that was ab all, all fabricated, 
and it was all based on Helen Gurley Brown's original book, Sex and the Single Girl. You see, back in the 60s, I'm, I'm an old lady now, <laughs> back in the 60s, when, when we were writing all of this stuff, women were not hopping into bed with men all the time. They were not, were not having, there, were, there was no hookup culture to speak of. There were just a few ladies that did this, very, very few. And uh, that's, the sexual revolution was sold as if everybody was doing it. Nobody wants to be alone out there. Have we noticed this right now? And everybody wants to be part of the crowd. And so if you teach a young woman from the time she's 12, which is what they're doing now, that uh, this hookup culture is what everybody's doing, you convince her before she can even think it through. And and what was the motivation of Helen Gurley Brown? Was it just, uh, uh, as you understood it, being there for 20 years, was it just this was an opportunity to make money or this was an opportunity to advance some of the more radical elements in the feminist movement and uh, branch into other areas of culture? She she was a money and power person. She didn't care. Mm-hmm. She didn't. She didn't know the difference either. Mm-hmm. And, and and I'll be honest with you. I'm. She wasn't the brightest bulb in the box. <laughs> I'm sorry, but she was. I'm not. I'm not surprised to hear that actually. Uh, <laughs> but 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 you you make mention of this too. But but uh, originally the feminist movement was about things like equality of opportunity in professional right. settings and so forth. And uh, okay, that's all fair game. But but then it became uh, because of some of the splintering and the sort of the leftist taking over. It became abortion as central to being a feminist, and uh, and that was also propagated by Cosmo. Yes, it was, and that's when it was when they joined abortion to the to, to the women's movement, to the uh, rights Bill of Rights, the National Organization for Women's Bill of Rights. There were a hundred people in the room that night that created that Bill of Rights. And only 57 women voted to insert abortion in, as a demand in the women's movement. And one-third of those ardent feminists walked out and later resigned from now over the abortion vote. That, um, that was the night that the women's movement split in two. Women who were for abortion, it was November 18, 1967, in the Chinese room of the Mayflower Hotel in Washington, D.C. That was the night that the women's movement split in two and the women who were for abortion uh, stayed in the National Organization for Women and the women that were against it walked out. And and the reason that uh, Helen Gurley Brown, if she was just interested in money or power, didn't go the route of the pro-life feminists is because she was a nihilist just like the pro-abortion feminists, and so they were fellow travelers, just different, different, different strains of nihilism, but the same general philosophy on life. Exactly. When, once you turn away from God, once you have no objective um, way to, to analyze and understand truth, that you, you can go off in all of these radical directions. And that's what Helen did. That's what the whole sexual revolution did. That's what Kinsey did. They reduced a woman to an animal. She's not, she doesn't have a soul. Uh, the, she's a soulless animal. And, and you've got the playboy bunny. You, you had the Cosmo Pussycat. It was all about reducing a woman's personhood to, to that of, a, of an animal who couldn't control herself. And so in, in the 21st century, you see the likes of, say, an Abby Johnson as the uh, yeah. feminists who are going to sort of re, rediscover, reclaim, and, and redefine feminism? Yeah, absolutely. She's going for it, man, and she's doing a great job. All right. She is Sue Ellen Browder. She's a former writer for Cosmo. 
author of Subverted, How I Helped the Sexual Revolution Hijack the Women's Movement, most recently of Sex and the Catholic Feminist, New Choices for a New Generation. Sue Ellen Browder, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. When the wheels come down. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Uh, our friend John Cochran, the grumpy economist and uh, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, uh, writing in the Wall Street Journal about the careful economy that's coming as states reopen. Get ready for the careful economy. The carefully reopened economy will be less efficient than the pre-pandemic economy. And uh, he uh, speaks about um, the uh, slow pace of recovery because of the pace of reopening. The virus will be with us for a long time, most likely. It will hobble the economy more than most people realize, writes Cochran. Restaurants that serve every other table. Airlines with every other seat empty must charge twice as much or have wages. Workplaces with six feet between employees need to rent more space. Every business has to disinfect once an hour. Uh, Every business that has to disinfect once an hour must pass that cost along. Efficiency is the secret of the American economy. The careful economy scales back that efficiency. There can be lots of jobs, but different jobs and jobs that pay less. And there was a report in the New York Times that's exactly that. uh, uh, You know, salaries being cut in lieu of or instead of uh, even more significant layoffs than we've seen. Cochran continues that the virus provokes a greater trade war, a reshoring of production that makes everything less efficient and more expensive as well. Gross domestic product and average wages must decline if everyone is working. Uh, And so, um, you know, just starting to get a handle on what uh, the recovery may, may look like and what its trajectory may be, even as you have Democrats, as we discussed yesterday with Steve Moore, in the um, relatively uh, curious position of rooting against a recovery and rooting against those predicting a recovery, like James uh, Jason Furman at uh, Harvard, who was an Obama economic advisor, suggesting that he sees a third quarter with unprecedented growth stats in American history, more of a V-shaped recovery than the U or L-shaped recovery that other more pessimistic economists are suggesting. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined by David Smither, a sourcing and procurement leader in the energy sector, working for a global manufacturing business in Houston, who uh, wrote a, a compelling piece at the Foundation for Economic Education, fee.org, about our living standards. David Smither, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, Dan, thanks for having me on. Uh, before we get to our, our the piece that you wrote about uh, what we assume that we shouldn't assume with, with respect to living standards, uh, your reaction to John Cochran's sort of careful economy description about the reopening that is afoot? Well, to be honest with you, I, I haven't read, I haven't read that piece, but um, I'm largely in agreement with the the commentary that you just provided there to it. I think that it's it's certainly something that it's necessary for people to keep in mind that you know there's always trade offs, and you know we can we can reopen the economy carefully and that that's certainly a possibility, but we can't have it come roaring back to full capacity if we put all those measures in place, because 
you know, it's just it's cause and effect. If you put these additional costs on vendors of any sort, whether it's a, a restaurant or a manufacturer or a freight company or, or whatever, I mean, suppliers have a cost structure and then they pass that on to their customers with a, a reasonable margin so that, that they can continue their business. And this whole idea of a careful economy, again, I didn't read that specific piece, but I mean, there's a lot of news out there with this kind of a tone to it. And people do need to keep in mind that if, if we opt for this approach, we're essentially one way to think about it is, and, and maybe this is because I'm, I'm a procurement guy, I'm a sourcing guy, that's, that's the career field that I'm in. So I think a lot about costs. And if we take that approach, then we are going to pay for it. There's just no other way around it. And we're going to pay for it in terms of, um, you know, probably some lost jobs, probably lower wages, probably longer lead times, uh, certainly probably increased taxes because uh, so much of the, um, you know, the recovery and the stimulus stuff that's going on in, in Washington is, um, you know, from a from a supply chain guy's point of view, it's just a bunch of unbudgeted costs that we're eventually going to incur or they're going to kick the can down the road and have the Fed pay for all of it, and then they devalue the currency. But, I mean, that's a whole other discussion we yeah. can get well, into. Well, I, when we come back, I, I want to get into that discussion. The, you know, we're not through the virus. We're, uh, we, we, we're continually told, and we're not. We're also not through the economic damage that is being visited upon Americans and the American economy. And I want to talk about both, in addition to specifically the energy sector and, and what you're seeing. More with David Smither. A sourcing and procurement leader in the energy sector working for a global manufacturing business in Houston right after this. is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with David Smither. He is a sourcing and procurement leader in the energy sector, working for a global manufacturing uh, business in, in Houston, Texas. And uh, as I said before the break, keep being told, hey, we're not through this yet. We still need to be careful uh, the virus is still with us. Uh, sure, that's true. Also, uh, today, we hear news that American Airlines is cutting 30 percent of its management and administrative staff. Uh, Wall Street Journal uh, report on the Fed so-called beige book with the uh, headline takeaway. Businesses see few signs of recovery through mid-May. We're uh, two million uh, first time unemployment filers added to the uh, unemployment rolls today. Uh, so we're not through the economic carnage that is being inflicted upon uh, American families either. And we need to be careful about both, don't we, David? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the carnage is, I mean, as you said, it's its ongoing and it will continue to be ongoing for, for quite some time. I mean, I haven't seen the most recent numbers, but I think the last one I saw was since all this chaos started, we've had, you know, something like 35 million people file for unemployment. You know, I mean, that's that's going to have ripple effects for at least months and 
more likely for years. And given the fact that America is, you know, given our position in the global economy, that's going to ripple out not just to Americans, but to the whole world. I mean, this is this is going to affect our species. Um, I saw a report the other day. Uh, I think there was a study put out by the Lancet uh, Medical Journal in the UK. Right. And they did they did some statistics and and I, I didn't I didn't do a, a a deep dive into their methodology, but they they looked at the economic impact of of shutting down so many economies around the world, and they concluded that the disruptions in supply chain, um, the delays on medical procedures that are considered non-essential, and and a variety of other things that are being impacted because of this, they concluded that actually more children are likely to die as a result of economic shutdown than the entire population of everyone that is forecasted to die from the coronavirus. So, you know, they said in so many words that the shutdown is going to kill more people than the virus. And I thought that was, you know, and they said it in kind of, you know, polite PC language, but the, the, the implications were very, very clear. I wanted to, to get your um, perspective on the energy sector, since this has been such a robust growth sector over the last decade that's led the the rebound from the Great Recession and uh, your uh, your prospects uh, with respect to the energy sector, you know, looking ahead uh, in the next 12 months, in the next uh, in the next couple of years. Well, we're kind of cautiously optimistic for recovery. Um you know my my sector and and I'm pretty pretty heavily tied up in in oil and gas and we've been hit from two angles, not only from the the general downturn in the all economies because of COVID-19, but um, there was this whole kind of price war thing going on with Saudi Arabia and the and the Russians, um, you know, driving the price down and then OPEC reached a agreement to cut production uh, I guess it was a few weeks ago now and so ever since then we've we've seen a slow uptick in the in the the prices at one point I think forget what date it was but it was uh, maybe three or four weeks ago futures contracts were actually trading negative I think yes. it was for the first time in history right. which is just yes. right. absurd and I, I was reminding a lot of people at the time, whenever that was going on, that, you know, futures price is not a spot price. And, and the real price of oil was still around $20 a barrel at that time. And so I thought to some extent that the news was sensationalizing it, um, you know, but w we do business in oil based on futures. And so it was still a very significant event. And, and, there's, but and, that, there's, and I think that that was driven more by more by the price war than by COVID is, is my, my personal kind of a, kind of a hunch, uh, educated guess, I guess, if you will. But there is the anticipation that there's going to be a lot of bankruptcies in your sector because uh, a lot of people can't oh, yeah. survive at 20 bucks a, a barrel. Absolutely. Basically only the, you know, 20 bucks a barrel, pretty much only the super majors can, can make it through a storm like this. Um, you know, most, you know, there's a term that goes around in oil and gas called the break-even price, which basically just means the price that crude oil needs to be sellable at in the market for a producer to break even on all of the costs that they put into producing that oil. And for most producers, that's somewhere in the range of 40 to $70 a barrel. It, it depends on a lot of things. 
shale producers have a different cost structure. Offshore producers have a different cost structure. But let's just say on average, it needs to be, you know, 40, 50 bucks a barrel for them to do a sustainable business, not to be profitable, but just to, to break even and stay in business. So 20 bucks a barrel, I mean, it, it's a bloodbath. Well, and that just feeds into the piece that you wrote for the Foundation on Economic Education, uh, fee.org, uh, which is about standard of living and the things that we assume that um, uh, shouldn't be assumed, uh, particularly depending on the policy choices we make. And we've had this conversation in the context of the energy independence when we were talking about things like the Green New Deal. Now we're talking about uh, a real world uh, uh, uh uh, eventuality that's been visited upon us, the shutdown and, and your comments on our standard of living. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting connection there. I mean, I, I really wasn't thinking about the energy sector at all when I wrote that piece, but it, it's certainly relevant because really what the piece was all about was, was I, I wrote it, primarily just as a kind of a celebration of commerce, a celebration of trade, and to try to clarify some underlying principles of how trade works that I think are really badly misunderstood. But um, yeah, in the, in the context of, of energy, those principles certainly apply, and then energy cascades down to everything else in the economy. He is David Smith, a sourcing and procurement leader in the energy sector, working for a global manufacturing business in Houston, Texas. Always get good to get a private sector practitioner's perspective on these discussions. David Smither, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Take care. Back to the Dan Prof Show. Why does Zoom exhaust you? Science. Let's talk about it. Uh, of course, Zoom has grown in recent months, per this piece in the Wall Street Journal, from 10 million people attending meetings at the end of last year to 300 million in April. Wow. And uh, recall the some of the uh, hacking problems that Zoom had in March as it really started to ramp up as states started to shut down. And uh, it turns out that uh, so-called Zoom fatigue is more than a byproduct of too many meetings. Social scientists say the result of sudden mass adoption of technology that disrupts the normal, instinctual, and finely tuned way of communicating that human beings have developed to survive. Uh, One uh, professor at Stanford University's Virtual Human Interaction Lab, Jeremy Ballinson, We've evolved to get meaning out of the flick of an eye. Our species has survived because we produce those signals in a way that's meaningful. Zoom smothers you with cues, and they aren't synchronous. It takes a psychological, uh, a physiological, he actually said physiological, not psychological, toll. The frustration um, is um, drawing more research. 
because as Professor Ballantin said, the experiments on this are in the dozens, not hundreds, and groups of people doing live video conferences. So they're launching this large-scale study to figure out how it affects users, uh, noting that you start from the premise, what we know to be true, and then you know, investigate. This is actual science. Communication being the interplay of talk and gestures and movement and timing that scientists call synchron uh, synchrony. And the synchrony found in face-to-face -face communication is possible over video in an ideal circumstance, but it's difficult to get that ideal circumstance. One of the other issues in terms of the overloading on cues and, and missing some of the subtleties that you get in face-to-face -face is uh, the mirror function actually is a source of stress, some have suggested, including an assistant professor at UC Santa Barbara who studies media and identity. Uh, researchers finding that the mirror or video camera trained on a, on a, a subject causes them to see the, themselves the way they think others do. And so, you know, now you're worrying about sort of your physical appearance as you're looking at your physical appearance while you're talking to others on a conference. It's just it's sort of a fascinating uh, area of inquiry as uh, distance learning and distance working become more a part of the American experience, at least for the foreseeable future. There's no question about that. And uh, as we close the show, uh, something to uh, take uh, refuge with from your Zoom conferences, that's Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus. This is uh, a documentary from investigative filmmaker Tim Mahoney, who journeyed to Egypt, Israel, throughout the world to search for answers to the very important question, did the stories like Exodus, as written in the Bible, really happen? Right now, you can watch Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus at home, along with other movies in the series at PatternsofEvidence.com. Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus also features a panel discussion moderated by Gretchen Carlson, featuring Dennis Prager and Eric Metaxas, as well as Anne Graham Lotz. Watch Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus, and others in the series. Go to PatternsofEvidence.com. That's PatternsofEvidence.com. Thank you for joining us on another edition of The Dan Prof Show, and we hope you do so again tomorrow. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.